Well, chapter 49, kids, kids, you know, when you don't want to kill them, they're pretty wonderful, right? But in Psalms 127, verse 3, David says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has a quiver full of them. So my good friend Mike Booker, who has 14 kids, pastor at Calvary Cleveland there, this is one of his favorite verses because he says he's sure that a quiver is at least 12 uh, back in the Jewish time. So he has 14. He says, I'm a bad shot, so I got I to gotta have extra quivers. But they are a blessing. But this is an interesting chapter 48 and 49 where D- Jacob realizes he's only got a few moments to live. He's 147 years old, and he wants to call his boys together. And I I think the idea is the blessing. You know, Abraham sort of had a blessing for Isaac. It wasn't really clear, but Ishmael, remember, it it wasn't a very, Abraham didn't really make a great moment of it. It was sort of just quick and very few things said. Isaac, of course, (laughs) was really confused. He wanted to give all the blessings to Esau instead of Jacob. Ended up, end up giving uh, Jacob a couple of different blessings, but it was sort of not out of the joy of his heart in doing so, okay? Um, he, he realized he was wrong and he blessed him again, but it wasn't, wasn't from this nice relationship. And, uh, and so now we've got Jacob here and he's got 12 sons, and he's been thinking about this. This is my personal opinion. I think he's been thinking about this for months. I think he's going through it in his mind and praying, and I think God's speaking to him. And so instead of blessing them and putting a blessing on them, it's more of a prophecy. And he realizes this. And this is why he, he actually says Uh, In verse 1, Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together, and I will tell you what befalls you in the last days. Their latter days, in particular, as human beings? No, as a tribe, as the nation of Israel. So really, this is the first time in the Bible where somebody consciously prophesied. So really, Jacob is the first guy who said, I'm going to tell you, prophecies uh, of the future. This is the first time. Now the guys did. They didn't realize they were speaking of future things, but, um, you know, through dreams and so forth. But they, they were. But this is where he realizes, I, I've been wrestling over this, praying about this, thinking about this. And it's clear in my mind. And I, I want to tell you guys of the future, of, of your tribes individually, but also as the nation collectively of, of Israel. It's interesting in verse two, it says, gather together here, you sons of, what? Jacob, ouch, ouch. And listen to Israel, your father. So he in essence says, I am Israel, the governed by God, I'm in the spirit. You guys are still a bunch of Jacobs. Um, you're still pretty fleshly dudes. And of course, so was Jacob when he was their age. So he gets them all together one by one. And um, he is going to first talk to the oldest now, Reuben. Now, remember in chapter 48, he started with uh, really not even Joseph, but with Manasseh and Ephraim. And now he's starting back at the top of the pegging order, his oldest son, Reuben. But if if you think now he's going to go the second oldest and third oldest and fourth oldest, you'd be wrong. Okay, what he actually does here is he takes the first oldest and he goes, okay, I'm going to prophesy to you, but your mom's Leah, Leah, so I'm going to take now all the sons of Leah after that in order of age. And then he'll take the next oldest after that and then that particular mom, Bilhah, and and go through all the the children of Bilhah. But so it's not necessarily... um, straight on down in order. It's sort of uh, a unique way of ordering this together, but that's the way he's doing it. So Reuben, you are my firstborn. 
So you're, you're the obvious protogenitor. In this society, the oldest son got everything, right? So you were the firstborn. Right out of the chute, what does he say about him? You were my might. You were the beginning of my strength. Excellency of dignity and excellency of power. You growing up and in your first, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 years, you were the number one son in every way, in character, in person, the way you carried yourself. You were the dream son of any father. And it was obvious that you were worthy to be the possessor of all things, being the protogenitor because of who you were. However, verse 4 you turned out being unstable as water. You shall not excel. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it and went up to my couch. Now, this is back in Genesis 35, 40 years earlier. And even though it was known that he had done this, it was swept under the rug. It, it wasn't brought up. It wasn't discussed. It was just sort of you know, ended and, and, and that was going to be the end of it. It's just something that happened we just want to forget about. But now 40 years later, he says, now you're going to have to answer for it, not only um, in your own life, but throughout the history of your peoples uh, as well. So when he's talking about Reuben, he's not just talking about Reuben, he's talking about the tribe of Reuben as well. Later on, when the priestly historical account is said, in 1 Chronicles 5, verse 1 and 2, he says, Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, he was indeed the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph. There it is. That's why chapter 48 started with Joseph's sons. The son of Israel, so that the genealogy is not listed according to the birthright, yet Judah prevailed over his brother, and from him came a ruler, although the birthright was Joseph's. So this is, he's saying it, it's really sort of difficult to explain. It's complicated. <laughs> Joseph, in God's mind is still the firstborn, the progenitor of the nation of Israel. But as time turned out with Ephraim and Manasseh, and that's another story, they didn't do too well spiritually. But nevertheless, it, it was given to them the, the status of that, but the real reality of the authority and the power and the riches went to the tribe of Judah. And that's something we're going to talk about later on. But what do, what do we learn about Reuben here? He's truly a cautionary story of the humbling reality. Something for all of us to take note. So many verses on this. I only wrote about 12. I didn't, I didn't do the other 12. But we know these, don't, don't we? Don't be deceived. God's not mocked. Whoever a man sows, that he also will reap. It may take 40 years, but eventually it's going to come back. Numbers 32, 23. And be sure your sin will find you out. First Timothy 5. This is one a lot of people don't think about as much as they probably should. In verse 24 and 25 of 1 Timothy 5. Some men's sins are clearly evident preceding them to judgment. But those who some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. So he says here that God's got his timetable. And on this earth, some men are going to reap what they sow. So sometimes guys murder somebody, they get caught, they spend their life in prison or maybe even get executed. But for every one guy that ends up getting caught, there's probably 5, 10, 20 that get away with it. And you know what happens? They get wealthy and healthy and they get kids and grandkids and they, they live, they're famous people and, and they die in royalty and peace. 
But when they stand before God, they're going to have to give an account of that. So it's really not all what's seen. So for us to say, well, that guy got away with that. That's unfair. That wasn't just. It's like, hey, you know, when somebody murders somebody or somebody rapes a little child and then murders them and you put them in prison for life, is that justice? No, it's not. Justice would be able to chop them in little pieces and torture them for a billion years and then keep them next to the devil as his neighbor for eternity. That's justice. We can't do that, can we? Really, for horrific crimes, we really can't produce justice. The best justice we can come up with is far more merciful than they deserve. So, again here, I think that People are thinking, well, God didn't say anything about it. God didn't bring it up. It didn't seem to become an issue. I swept it under the rug and all is fine. And it needs to be in your mind going, oh, it's just something that God's not bringing to judgment now. (laughs) It doesn't mean I'm not going to have to answer it when I stand before him. We are going to have to stand before him on all these things. So for Reuben, it was 40 years before he had to answer that thing that was hidden. 1 Corinthians 3.13, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one work of what sort it is. So it'll become clear. Give it time, whether it's the standing before the white throne of judgment to condemnation or standing for the bema seat of Christ before reward or lack of reward. In Luke 8, 17, for nothing is secret that will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be known and come to light. Isn't that interesting? Jesus says, yeah, the, you, you think it's the secret of your heart, but it's going to be revealed someday. And of course, if we're walking in submission and walking in obedience and, and we're going to help those are in prison and nobody on earth knows about it. <laughs> and we're going to visit those who are sick and, and we don't make a, a noise about it. We don't do like the Pharisees and blast the trumpet going, do, 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 do. I went and visited the sick. Woo-hoo. You know, um, you just do it because that's just who you are. And one day you're going to stand before God. And he's going to say, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty. You gave me to drink. I was in prison and you visited me. Now here's your reward. So again, it can go either way, can't it? But I, I think, again, that the point here is to think that you're getting away with the sin or getting away with the lukewarmness or the compromise that's going to be revealed. Mark 4, and 23 said basically the same thing. For there is nothing hidden which will not be revealed, nor has anything been kept secret, but that it should come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Matthew 12, 36 and 37. But I say to you that if every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it on the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9 and 11. Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in his body according to what has been done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your conscience. So Paul saying, standing before, not the bema seat of Christ for judgment, but before the or the white throne judgment, but before the beam seat of Christ, it's still standing before God, and he is in the place of judging right now. He has his judge's hat on, so to speak. And he's calling your name, you know. He's going alphabetically. Newman. Newberg. And you know it's getting close. Newberry, oh boy. Ooh. And when it finally comes and you're standing before God and all hidden things become to light, all words brought into judgment. 
all the good things, all the bad things, whatever we've done in our flesh. Paul said, realizing that moment is coming. And he uses the word terror here. It's the very generic word phobos, which is fear or reverence. It's the same word where it says, let a wife reverence her husband. It's the same thing there. It, it, can, it has that same type of thing. So it can definitely mean terror. It can definitely mean fear. But it can also just mean uh, an awesomeness, a, a awe moment, a sobering reality. I, I honestly think that it's going to be far more amazing than what we can picture. You know what I mean? It's like we could picture we're going to go to a ball in Austria and, you know, it's a black tie event and all the women are wearing their dresses and we can picture a castle in Austria and we can picture it, you know, but then we finally get there and we're walking up the steps of the castle and we hear the music and see all the colors and all the gold and all the chandeliers and, uh, and everybody, I think that moment would be like, whoa, this is far you know, experience in this moment is far greater than what I could even imagine. In the same way, I think we can imagine what it would be like when Christ is, is saying, okay, now we're going to judge you according to what rewards you're going to have or not have. And he's saying, knowing that is happening, we spend time with Christians, Paul says, with every believer. This is part of the discipleship program, he says is that we try to put this fear of God, this reverence of God, this, this awe moment in their hearts and minds to cause to, them to want to say, okay, and then we hit 2022, and uh, now we're going to, hey, you know what? There's no, nothing bad on your record after 2022. After 2022, you really got understood sanctification and, and looking at these last several years from then on, wow, only good rewards, only things that are precious metals that make it through the fire of judgment. That's what he is saying. I'm trying to get people to, but not the fear of condemnation. That You remember 1 John 4, 18, there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out all fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has been made perfect in love. However, on the other side of that coin, Hebrews 10.31 says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. It's still, an, it's going to be an awe, amazing moment when we stand before him as his kids. And, and so really, when we're looking at chapter 49 here, we really need to to think through the nature of God. Because in essence, this is sort of a preview of Christ judging us the way Jacob is judging his kids, okay? So this isn't Jacob speaking. This is the Lord speaking concerning Reuben, right? It's not Jacob saying, this is my opinion. He's saying, thus saith the Lord. This is God's opinion. And this is what I can prophesy the future is going to come in judgment to what you've done in the past. So he says, you're unstable as water, you shall not excel. And sure enough, no prophet, no judge, no king came from the tribe of Reuben. He's sort of a perfect example, isn't he, of Matthew 19.30. For many who are first will be last and last first. He truly was the first, but he became the last. Well, Simon or Simeon and Levi now are our next kids of Leah also. And he says, Simon and Levi, or Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox, the new King James says. The old King James says, dig down a wall. Um, either way, it's sort of hard to know what they're talking about on that particular phrase in Hebrew. But cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cool. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So 
you know, obviously we, we know about the Dinah story in chapter 34, where they said, oh, get circumcised and we'll let you be a part of the house of Israel. And when they were in a very vulnerable place, they went in there and killed the whole village. So it was a lot more than just killing one guy. I, but he's saying it's been a pattern of your life, whether you hamstrung a, a oxen or you, you dug a wall to fall on somebody. Um, I, there's many times that you guys are just angry, mean dudes. Now, I can tell you, growing up, I, I've seen kids, I can remember back in kindergarten, they were mean. In first grade, they were mean. You know, you, you don't have a bully who showed up at fifth grade going, hey, I was really sweet, but this year I'm a bully. No, no, no. He was a bully all the way back with the blocks in the kindergarten class, let me tell you. That's these guys. They just always had this angry, mean uh, bully side of them. And, and Jacob ha has not said anything about it. Again, when they did that thing and, and Dinah, uh, that story when they killed the whole village, what did Jacob say? Nothing. He, he didn't have the tools to discuss it or he didn't have the character to rebuke it or maybe it was just so overwhelming to him. He, he couldn't recognize that it even happened. It was just too much even for him. Either way, he says, I'm saying it now. I didn't, I didn't say anything about then, but I'm saying it now. I was not in agreement with that. It was wrong for them to do that. And uh, I'm just letting you know, I, I, I do not uh, appreciate what they did. And I, and I think this is why you're going to see what happens with them. So and now this is interesting because he, he says Simeon is going to be scattered. Now it, it turns out, that Simeon, when they divided up the land, he got the far southern portion. I'm talking about the, the part on the other side of Bethlehem. And after them uh, begins the, the land heading to Egypt. And, and he was right on the border where all the Philistines and so forth were. So he ended up sort of being separated from everybody. They, he, they, we don't see Simeon joining with Judah or with the tribe of Benjamin, which were in Jerusalem and Bethlehem, they never gathered together. They were always sort of separated from the rest of the clan. But God in his grace with the Levites, they sort of redeemed themselves. Remember, remember the story. We, we go into it first. The, God's original plan was to have 10% of every tribe be a priest. But when they all worshiped that golden calf that Aaron made, and Moses came down and with the Ten Commandments, and he said, hey, this has got to end. And people are like, hey, let's fight with Moses. And Moses drew a line and said, hey, you're either for God and repent, or you're, you're in battle against God. And he drew a line, and all the Levites, Aaron's family, all stood with him and warred against the rest of the nation of Israel. And after that, God said, okay, the Levites alone will be priests. But just as he prophesied, they were scattered because they could not own land. God said, you're not going to be counted as one of the tribes. Did you do the math? It's like, hold it. We had 12 tribes. And then with Joseph, we added to the tribe of uh, Ephraim and Manasseh. Now we have 13 tribes. Ooh, that sounds, you know. No, it goes back to 12 tribes because uh, the Levites aren't counted as a tribe. And they are given 48 cities by Joshua to live in. And then they also had the cities of refuge. And they also had land outside cities that they could garden and so forth. And so sure enough, they were scattered, but scattered to be a blessing, not to be diminished because of they stood for righteousness along the side with Moses. Well, verse 8 now through 12 we're going to look at Judah. Judah, you are he whom your brothers will praise. Now that's sort of a play on the word because the word Judah itself means praise. Just like Jews means praise. And so Judah, your name is praise and your brothers are going to praise you. You got the perfect name for you. 
Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies and your father's children shall bow down before you. Oh, that's a term that would have caused civil war early on. You know, when Joseph said, my brothers are going to bow down, boy, they, they had a fit. But here he said, it's not going to be Joseph. It's actually going to be Judah that your brothers all bow down to. Judah is a lion's whelp. From every prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, as a lion who shall rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey to the colt and the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of the grapes." His eyes are darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. So we know what ends up happening with Judah, don't we? He ends up becoming the kingly tribe. And from that tribe comes the Messiah, Jesus. But originally, Judah, he was not a man of very good character, was he? We, we see um, it was his idea to sell Joseph off and make money off him. It was his idea to not give Tamar to his son Seth after his other two sons died and she got, acted like a prostitute and he had sex with her, his own daughter-in-law, and had their son, who happens to be in the lineage of Messiah, um, Perez, in that lineage. But however, we do see in Genesis 44, when they start dealing with Joseph, not knowing it's Joseph, they're in Egypt, that, that Judah steps up and leads this thing going, Dad, you can, I'll give you my life if anything happens to Benjamin. He stepped up and, and really had a sacrificial spirit and was willing to uh, do whatever it took sacrificially to make sure that everybody else was protected so really, it's in God's grace, once again, um, that Judah is given this royalty, this kingness, this lineage of the Messiah. And of course, he's a lion's whelp. He's just a little pup compared to where this lion's going to grow. Because eventually, the lion is going to be the Messiah himself. Revelation 5.5, 5, right? He is the lion of the tribe of Judah as though a lamb who is slain. And then, of course, what do we see Jesus the lion doing? Coming down at the end of the tribulation period and going down in the valley of Armageddon and having this battle. And, and again, we, we, we see um, where his garments are stained like wine, the blood uh, of the slain and so forth. And uh, so we see the royalty we see the, the war, uh, and ultimately we see Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So there's some interesting uh, things uh, looking into that. Now this whole thing about until Shiloh comes. Now Shiloh, I, I don't know of any Jewish writing that does not believe that Shiloh is a word meaning the Messiah. And so what does it say there about the Messiah? It says uh, in verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Now, there's an interesting book, if you want to read it, by Mark Eastman called In Search of the Messiah. And he goes into this phrase in incredible detail. And he actually documents reading historical Jewish writings that at the turn of the century, somewhere in the first uh, quarter, the fourth quarter of the first century, whatever it was, that the Romans publicly said, because the Jews had been so stubborn that they no longer could give out um, capital punishment. And that's the way the rabbis interpreted this. The scepter was the authority, not necessarily to be a king, but to have the ability to follow God's word and apply the death penalty where needed. Because as they looked at the law, in order to keep their society pure, 
They may not have the royalty of the civil law, but the spiritual keepers could still continue to keep things pure through the capital punishment. But when that was taken away, they believed at that point that God had failed because they did not believe that could or would ever happen until the Messiah. It actually, one quote says, the rabbis walked the streets of Jerusalem and said, woe unto us, for the scepter has been taken away from Judah and Shiloh has not come. Now, as he goes on in this, he, died, he believes it happened when Jesus would have been 12 years old. And they would have been walking around saying this when Jesus had his bar mitzvah and would have been debating with the priest on scripture. Maybe it was on this very point. But either way, the Messiah was there. They just didn't know it. So Chuck Smith just takes more of a generic look at it, saying the scepter is the rule. And of course, Israel had no rule after 70 AD. Within 40 years after Christ had died and rose again, Titus from Rome came up. And as you guys know, they had this siege against Jerusalem. And after 70 AD, it was completely destroyed. And uh, Jerusalem, for a very long time, was completely abandoned. And, and of course, the Jews would not formally live and definitely not have power over Jerusalem until 1967. Interesting. 70 AD to 1967, that's almost 1970. Wow. It's an amazing thing to consider and to think through that. That, um, again, he, he, the way he looks at that again is that uh, the Judah no longer had any authority in Israel because they were no longer in Israel. The Jews were scattered to the four corners of the world. So what are we looking at chapter 49 here? It's sort of a reference book. It's an encyclopedia. So as we're reading about Zubalan or Niftili or Simeon or whatever we're reading, we go back to this and say, okay, what was the prophecy concerning them? And sure enough, the pieces very much fit. Now, if you're thinking, well, yeah, we're going sort of backwards and making the pieces fit. I'm telling you, the tribe of Zubalan probably before they could barely talk, had this prophecy of Father Jacob down. Father Jacob said this about us, the tribe of Judah. The, and, and boy, the kids of Judah would know that. Hey, the chubs, the kids of Levi would know what Father Jacob said about them. And these things would go into their hearts and their minds. And it would also be sort of a, an encouragement. Because, well, we're of the tribe of Reuben. <laughs> we will not excel. But remember what God said about Levi, that he was going to be scattered. But, but then because he stood for God, he was scattered in a positive way that ended up blessing the children of Israel. You, you see what I'm saying? Think about Judah. He was not an honorable person. But then he finally did stand to become an honorable person when he stood before Joseph in Egypt. And, and God made him uh, the, the leader of the children of Israel. So even though these things are true about us, doesn't mean this is exactly what's going to happen. This is what our father was. And this is the tendency of where we're going to head if we don't make a change. Well, verse 13 so Zublin shall dwell by the haven of the sea, and he shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall adjoin Sidon. Now this is interesting, because when you look at the tribe of Zublin and where they're at, now I, got you, I gave you two maps. You have one attached to the back of your notes, but then I gave you a separate map. And one of them will show the different tribes uh, the darker green one I gave you, you'll see Zublin up there. And then written vertically, you'll see Neftili. Do you see that? Zublin, Neftili on the left of the Sea of Galilee there. And then on the other map, if you go up um, right at the bottom part of Galilee and go to the left, you'll see Nazareth. 
Now, here's what's interesting about the site of Nazareth today is we're not certain where, where it fell, but it appears to have fallen maybe right on the border of Nephtili and Zubalin. And the reason I, I say that is because it's interesting how Jesus described it. He described it in Matthew 4, verse 13 and 15. He said, And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, Capernaum indeed was, in the regions of Zubalin and Naphtali, that it may fulfill which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zubalin and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, the reason I point this out to you, the reason I gave you the map, is you will notice that Zublin and Niftili do not have water, except maybe some rivers, in their land. But Henry Morris and others point out that this actually could be translated, not that they are on the sea, but that they can see the sea. And it's interesting because in Deuteronomy 33, verse 18 and 19, when Moses is giving his prophecies, he actually says about Zubalin in Deuteronomy 33, 19, for they shall partake of the abundance of the seas, plural, which would then give you that, that you got to the west, the Mediterranean, they could see that, and to the east, they could see the Sea of Galilee. They could see um, waters, the seas, the lake, fresh lake, as well as the Mediterranean Sea in both directions, or in each direction, depending on which way they, they looked. However, I will say this, that as we look at, and I'm not going to do this in any kind of detail here tonight, but in Ezekiel 48 is where God prophesies about the lands of Israel in the future in the millennial reign. And as we look at Ezekiel 48, it's hard um, to know for absolute certain, but it does appear that the land of Zubalin and Ephtili actually go right down to the Mediterranean Sea all the way to Sidon, which is in Lebanon today. And so they, that a big part of that land uh, that you have Asher over there now, but a big part of that should have been should have been Zubalans, but they didn't conquer it. They didn't finish uh, conquering the land. If you read in Joshua 19, verse 10 through 16, it definitely appears they did not do the conquest of all of the land. So, you know, Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. Judah is from Bethlehem area, right? Including Bethlehem. But where did Jesus grow up? In Nazareth, which is Zublon and Nephtali. So he actually didn't grow up with the tribe of Judah. He grew up with the tribe, the tribes of Zublon and Nephtali. Now, let's do understand that after the conquest of the Assyrians, after the conquest of the Babylonians, that they pretty well destroyed the lands and the boundaries. And so remember with the Assyrians, so let me go, let me go back a little bit. So you got Solomon, he's a wise guy, but with a bad lifestyle. <laughs> he ends up with two sons, uh, or excuse me, a son Jeroboam, but then there's another guy, Rehoboam, or his son Rehoboam, another guy, Jeroboam. And they split the country in two. You have Israel and you have Jacob. And, and so the northern kingdom, known as Israel, and then Judah, excuse me, uh, and then Judah is basically Jerusalem and, and that area around. So when the Assyrians came up, they pretty well leveled and took away and destroyed the land of Israel. So all of those tribes, except for those who had moved to Jerusalem, a lot, of, a lot of people from each tribe, they all left California and moved to Texas. I mean, they all, they all left the other parts of the land and they moved to the Jerusalem area. Um, 
And so there were a good group of all the different tribes. But far as the what used to be the rest of the nation of Israel became the northern. But the Assyrians came in. They brought people from other lands and forced marriage with the Jews. And this is how, you, of course, you end up with the Samaritans, right? Half Jew and half something else. That's the way they conquered land. But Babylon, they said, no, keep your language, keep your religion, keep your culture, but you got to be subservient to us and pay taxes, which they didn't do. Eventually, the Babylonians destroyed them. But a big part of them lived now in Babylon. And when Daniel was crying out, said, please let us come back in now, Lord. And they said, go. There was a very small remnant. But it was remnant of all the different tribes that went. But they weren't really living tribally as they had once done in the time of Joshua and before the attacks of the Assyrians. So what did that look like when they went back? Did they know, for example, they were living in the land of Nephtali and Zublin? Yeah, pretty, pretty much, sort of. And so I think, well, what was Nazareth? Is it Zublin or Nephtali? Well, we don't know that kind of detail. We do know that this is where the two tribes generally lived up here. Do you understand? And so it's interesting that this is how the prophecy looks. Uh, Jesus actually talked about there like in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. And when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zublin and the land of Nephtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan and the Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. And he goes on in the next few verses talking about the Messiah coming to uh, the nation of Israel via through the land of Zubalan and Niphtali, which Jesus came out of Nazareth, and then around the Sea of Galilee. So almost, understand, almost all of Jesus' ministry was there. He would go up to Jerusalem once a year for those few weeks every year that all Jews had to do. But almost all of Jesus' ministry was in the land of Zublin and Niphtali and around the Sea of Galilee. Interesting, isn't it? So we, we, we sort of need to re- calculate our brains, okay? And so you might remember the one woman who was inside and came and got Jesus. It wasn't that far away to head, which is over in Lebanon today, but it was in Israel at that time in the area of Sidon, but it was still a very Gentile area. So we go on, of course, in chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, we have one of the greatest Messianic prophecies just a few verses down, don't we? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David, over his kingdom, and order, order it and establish it with judgment and justice from the time forth, this time forward, forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. So it was prophesied he would be born in Bethlehem, right? The southern part of Israel. That's down at the bottom there. You can't see it on these maps. And then he was there for a short time, probably under two years. And then he was shipped off to Egypt. Remember, they were hiding out from Herod. And then when they heard Herod had died, they came and they went and lived way up in the land of Zublin and Niphtali, between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea, right there up in that region. And when he started his ministry, he left the area of Niphtali and Zublin and came on down to the Sea of Galilee, to Capernaum. That's where his headquarters was, his three years of ministry. And it was from there he would go out to different places and come back. But this is, uh, again, an interesting thing to try to get this all straight in our minds as we think about it. So it says that they eventually are going to be a haven by the sea and, and all of this. And I believe all of this is going to happen in the millennial reign. When they do possess all of the land, they will indeed have a coastal ministry, so to speak, in that millennial reign. Well, verse 14 and 15. 
And um, Ishakar is a strong donkey lying down between two burdens. He saw that uh, the rest was good and that the land was pleasant. And he bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and he became a band of slaves. Oh, my. So Ishakar, as we read later in Numbers 26, they had one of the largest tribes, but they could never get it together. They were always docile and lazy and oppressed into servanthood. And again, Ishakar is right there on your map, right there in that same area of, of uh, Zublin and Ephtili. Ishakar is right there. Well, in verse 16 and 18, looking at Dan, Dan shall judge his people. Again, play on words because the name Dan is the word judge, to judge. Dan shall be a judge, and his name is called judge. As one of the tribes of Israel, Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels, that its rider shall fall backwards. I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. So interesting. Dan is going to be a judge. He's going to judge his people. You guys know the story in the book of Judges, right? Who was one of the most famous judges? A guy by the name of Samson. And guess what tribe he was from? The tribe of Dan. And of course, um, in that time, you also have others. But Unfortunately, Dan became a snake, and he just bit at horses and killed things. And, and then Jacob, as he's thinking about this, he cries out in verse 18, and he says, oh, I've waited for the salvation of the Lord. But boy, if you don't get this in verse 18, you really miss something special. Oh, Lord, that is Yah, Yahweh. Salvation, Shua. He literally says, I've waited for you, Jesus. <laughs> I'm waiting for you, Jesus. But it was right after he talked about Dan. Now, this is interesting because Dan, uh, their claim to fame was really they became idolaters. In the book of Judges 18, they were the first to lead into idolatry. And then, of course, Jeroboam, it was in the area of Dan, all the way up to the north. Dan was in the farthest northern part. And that was where they set up the golden calf, the place of worship. And then later, in the book of Amos, chapter 8, verse 14, Amos rebukes them because he says they become the center of idolatry for the nation of Israel. Now, why is this important? Because that's the way the Antichrist is going to be. And this is why many think Daniel 11, verse 37, he shall regard neither the God of his fathers nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. The Antichrist, he won't respect Jesus. He won't respect the true God of uh, the God and Father. He will exalt himself. And so many believe this Antichrist is going to be Jewish, but he is going to be from the tribe of Dan. Jeremiah 8, verse 16, I think even makes this even clearer. The snorting of his horses has heard, was heard from Dan. The whole land trembled at the sound of the neighing of his strong ones, for they have come and devoured the land and all that is in it, the city and those who dwell in it. So talking about the Antichrist, many think that it's actually, he's going to be from the tribe of Dan. Now in the book Revelation, chapter 7, when they have 12,000 Israelites from all 12 tribes, making 144,000, the tribe of Dan is not counted. Dan is out of the book of Revelation there. But then later on in Ezekiel 48, when God in the millennial period is dividing up the land of Dan, he comes back and is, they do have a tribe once again. So as he says there, I have waited for the salvation that there is a point where the tribe of Dan, maybe in the end of the tribulation period, I don't know, repents and God grants them to come back and be counted as a tribe. Well, verse 19, Gad and the troops shall tramp upon him and he shall triumph at last. Again, a play on words because the name Gad is the word troop. He's going to troop this troop, shall tramp upon him, and he shall have triumph at last. So Gad is going to be a great warrior. And in verse 
Chronicles 5.18, it talks about this, how there's so many uh, mighty thousands of, uh, of valiant men, skillful in war. I really like the description in, in verse 8 of 1 Chronicles 12. 1 Chronicles 12.8, some Gadites joined David at the stronghold of the wilderness, mighty men of valor, men trained for battle, who could handle shield and spear, whose faces were like the faces of lions and were as swift as gazelles on the mountains. So they had faces like lions. Now, you know what we, we know about people who have faces like lions today? They've gotten plastic surgery. They've gotten too many of them, right? Uh, they're not mighty warriors. They've just been cut up too many times. And, um, and of course, they think nobody knows it. Nobody notices I had plastic surgery. That, I mean, that, that's the thing they, they say to themselves. Anyway, it's weird. Um, so ultimately, though, they shall indeed have victory. Even though they, they've got mighty men and they have a lot of battles and they get tramped, eventually they have victory. And then in verse 20, Bread from Asher shall be rich, and he shall yield royal dainties. Moses said in Deuteronomy 33, 24, And of Asher, he said, Asher is most blessed of sons. Let him be favored by his brothers, and let him dip his foot in oil. So Asher is most blessed of the sons. Let him be favored by his brothers. Let him dip his foot in oil. Boy, there's only sweet things said about Asher. Chuck believes that he's talking about he, he's a baker. And he makes donuts and stuff, the royal dainties. And it's like, praise God, I, I want to be a part of Asher too. Well, in verse 21, Niftili is a deer let loose. He uses beautiful words. Again, the main amount of teaching that came, that Jesus did, came out of that region. In Matthew 4, verse 12 through 16, now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, John the Baptist, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Jerubalim and Niphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, the land of Jerubalim, the land of Niphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in that region, the shadow of death, light has dawned. So beautiful uh, words were spoken there. Um, and there was a lot of freedom of, of the Lord to move in that place. Well, now we start talking about Joseph again in verse 22 to 26. Joseph is the fruitful bough or a branch of a tree. A fruitful branch or bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shotted him, hated him. But his bough remained in strength or excuse me, his bow remained in strength and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, the God of your father who helped you. By the almighty you have blessed you, the blessings of heaven above and of the, de of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breast of the womb. The blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors. Upon the utmost bound of the everlasting hills, they shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who has separated him from his brothers. So the first part of this is sort of describing how God graciously took Joseph through all his trials in Egypt and, and how people shot at him and ended up in slavery and then in prison and people tried to come against him, but that he didn't have to fight, that God was fighting his battles. And, and if he needed his bow, God's hand was on top of his hand. I love that in verse 24, the arms of his hands, Joseph's hands, were made strong by the hands of the mighty God. It reminds me of Psalms 1, you know, if those who meditate in the word of God day and night, and it, he'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in his season, whatever he does, uh, his leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. So it's a picture of a branch. I grew up in Central California, and everybody had fruit trees. And, and of course, they would hang over the fence. So when I was a kid, you know, we had plums, but our neighbors had peaches. And our plum trees would go over the fence, and his peach trees would go over the fence. 
So we didn't have to have a peach tree, but we had a bunch of peaches to eat and vice versa with plums. And then, of course, our other neighbor had grapes and we had grapes. So go in our backyard and it was, it was pretty normal or walk down an alley and you got a whole uh, supermarket there. And they expected you to take it, uh, take what you need as you, as you walk on down the road. It was quite delightful. And that's Joseph. He's such a person, just so much fruit hanging over for everybody to partake of. And then Jacob, interesting enough, speaks of himself. Notice that. The blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of your ancestors. Wow. Remember back Jacob speaking to Pharaoh in Genesis 47, 9? He says, how old are you? Yeah, few and evil have been the days of my years, and my pilgrimage is not as great as my pilgrimage of my father's. You know, I'm, I'm sort of a sorry example of my people. And that's the way he really disgraced God in front of him. Well, you think of Jacob's life. He's going to make it to the Hall of Fame. By faith, Jacob fled from Esau to the land of Ur. Does the Bible say that? By faith, Jacob fled from Label, Laban back to the land of Israel. By faith, what? You know, in the hall of faith, there's one little sentence about Jacob. What's it say in Hebrews eleven twenty one? This is it. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning on the top, of his staff. The only thing of pure faith that Jacob did was chapter 48 and 49, right before he died. Whew, he got in just in the nick of time. Had he died at 46, we may not have even heard about him in the Hall of Faith. It wasn't year 140, it wasn't year 145. 147 years and moments away before he died that we finally see pure faith that God can, can say, this is going in the hall of faith. And what was it? It was just these words right here. Verse 26, the blessing of your father has excelled the blessing of my ancestors up to the osmort bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be the head of Joseph and on the crown of head of those who separate from his brothers. God is doing a great work and it's gonna be a greater work in you, Joseph, just like God did a greater work in me than he did in my forefathers. What? Is this the same Jacob? And then look what he does in verse 24 and 25. It's mind-boggling, guys. He comes with five different names of God. He says, oh, may the mighty God of Jacob, may the shepherd, may the stone or the rock of Israel, may the God of your fathers who helped you, may the almighty uh, El Shaddai who will bless you. Wow. Man, I mean, think back in Genesis 31 when, when Jacob was trying to find words to talk about God and how this God is for him and in his life. Look in Genesis 31, 53, he says, the God of Abraham, okay. The God of Nahor, uh, okay. The God of their fathers, uh, uh, judge between us. And Jacob swore by uh, the fear of uh, the father Isaac. That was, that was like, he had no relationship with God. He had no idea. But what do we find here now? Now he knows God for himself and how it's clear to him. God, mighty. I want people to know the mighty God of Jacob. Wow. That's awesome. It's pretty cool just to say it. The mighty God of Brian. He's my God. Isn't that wonderful? I'm submitted to him. He's my Lord. This is what he's saying. He's my God. He's my shepherd. He's my rock. He's my father. He's El Shaddai, the God of war, the God of host, the God almighty. That's who God is in my life now. 
And this is clear in your life, Joseph. It was clear when you were in Egypt and all that happened. It's been clear in all your life up to this point. And, and it's going to be clear through your children and your ancestors. You are the primogenitor of Israel. It's through this life of faith that God is going to be known. Well, verse 27, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, he shall devour the prey, and at night, he shall divide the spoil. So we really don't know any stories about Benjamin other than he was a little guy that was the last child. And, uh, and he, de- you know, Joseph or Jacob definitely didn't want to lose him. Outside of that, we didn't really know. But later on in the book of Judges, there's going to be a guy from Benjamin, Ehud, the left-handed man that God uses as a judge. And then, of course, King Saul was the tribe of Benjamin. The apostle Paul, he used to be a Saul, was from the tribe of Benjamin. Probably one of the worst stories in all the Bible concerning the nation of Israel is found in Judges 19 and 20. It's sort of an appendix to to the book of Judges. We're not sure where it comes out in the book of Judges. But it's basically the tribe of Benjamin becomes Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's a really hideous story. I'm not going to go into it, but God virtually had to destroy the entire tribe of Benjamin. And they were going to go extinct, but God arranged it so everybody from every tribe would marry into the tribe of Benjamin. And then um, from there, they could raise up to their dead relative, a son who would be called a Benjamite, even though in blood he really wasn't a pure Benjamite. And because the Benjamites were Jerusalem, that was their original location, that area, and in Bethlehem, the Benjamites and the tribe of Judah sort of became one because they were basically extinct. They just sort of, Judah took them under. And so the two of them sort of remained one. So when the nation was split by after Solomon, Ten of the tribes went this way, and Benjamin and Judah went this way. So um, not a lot about them, but except for that, that horrendous story. And then in verse 28, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel, and this is what their father spoke to them. He blessed them. He blessed each one according to their own blessing. He blessed them. Hmm, no, I don't know if everybody's feeling that way. Asher sure is. He's like, whoa, yeah, I love this stuff, man. It was short but sweet. Benjamin's like, oh, a ravenous wolf. I don't know if I really feel blessed by all of this. Uh, so I don't think everybody equally felt blessed, but yet that was the, the, the overall intent of that. And then finally here in verse 29 to 32, it says, Then he charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. One of my favorite phrases in all the Bible. I'm going to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron, the Hittite, of the possession of the burial place. And there they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. Now, it's interesting because we know back in Genesis 35 that Rachel, his, his wife that he loved the most, was buried by Bethlehem. He actually bought a plot of land and buried her there, separate from Leah, separate from... And it, it was sort of assumed by everybody that he would be buried next to Rachel, the wife he loved so much. But instead, he was buried by the wife that was most fruitful. And I think the wife he learned to appreciate and came to love the most because of her character. Rachel didn't have a great character. Leah did. Well, verse 33, And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Interesting. It was almost like he was willing himself to live. It was almost like what's keeping me alive is the word of God that I'm supposed to proclaim. But as soon as I speak the last word of God I need to speak, I'm going to die. 
So that's it. That's all that God has for me on this planet Earth. That's the final word of God. Amen. Puts his feet in bed. <sighs> he dies. Um, and he's gathered to his people. Oh, I love that. When we die, the Lord Jesus, we're going to wake up. He's going to be stroking our face. He's going to say, hey, wake up, wake up. You're here now. We're going to look around. It's going to be so amazingly beautiful. No pain. Oh, thank you, Jesus. No sorrow. And there will be all our loved ones peeking over Jesus' shoulder. Hey, Dad. Hey, hey son. Hey, grandson. Hey, get up and concentrate on hugging Jesus a while and then start hanging out with all my family and friends that have died before me. Gather together with our people. Pretty cool, huh? Well, my 30 minutes is up. Lord, thank you for <laughs> your word tonight. Thank you for this most amazing resource that we'll be referring to time and time again as we study all the way to the book of Revelation. And we thank you now that we have learned much. We have sort of, in a sense, gone before the judgment seat, before we're going before the judgment seat. We had a moment here tonight where we sensed the awe. We sensed the terror, if you would. We sensed the sober reality of that moment that we're going to have to give an account of all we've done in our body, good and bad, Whatever's in the darkness we've tried to hide, it's going to be brought into the light. Every word we even thought in our heart is going to have to be brought forth to give an account to either give us reward or lack of it. And Lord, knowing this, let us persuade Christians to be holy. Let us persuade ourselves to be sanctified. Let us say to one another why it's still called day, let us not sin. But if we have sinned, Jesus Christ, the righteous, will forgive us from all our sin, but we must quickly get up and begin to move forward to be fruitful that we could glorify our Father in heaven, not just now in this earth, but throughout all of eternity, that Christ is able to give us all the glory, all the rewards, all the crowns. He's able to lift us up as a priest and a king in his kingdom, that would give him great joy that we could be the people of God after your own heart who do all your will. If we have a couple others pray and then we'll just have our brother Matthias close us with a song here. Mm -hmm.